Welcome to On the Middle East, our monitor's weekly podcast on the big stories in the region. My name is Ambrun Zaman, and today we'll be talking about what impact the conflict in Ukraine is having on Syria. Russia's support is critical to the regime of Syrian President Bashar Assad. Faced with unexpected resistance from the Ukrainian people and crippling sanctions from the West, can Russia continue to prop up Assad and help him wrest back territory from the Sunni opposition and the Kurds? With us here today to discuss these issues is Aaron Lund, a Swedish researcher who has closely followed the Syrian conflict since day one. So welcome to our program, Aaron. It's really great to have you on today. Thank you. It's good to be here. So, of course, Ukraine is the big story and uh, it involves Russia. And Russia is a major player in Syria where it helps prop up the regime of Bashar Assad. And of course, um, a question that's being frequently asked now is how will the setbacks uh, suffered by Russia in Ukraine uh, impact its support for that regime financially, militarily and otherwise? Well, good question. I think we have yet to see, of course, how the Ukraine war uh, turns out and how uh, you know impactful the sanctions on Russia turn out to be uh, and how the diplomacy around that conflict develops uh, but I think you know I suspect that this will have a a significant impact on Syria um, in you know, economically but also politically diplomatically and and perhaps also militarily we'll, we'll see of course well I mean could you sort of break that down a bit, tease it out a bit, um, you know, specifically, how would that, might that rather play out? Well, the most obvious uh, thing to look for, uh, given that the Syrian conflict is a, is a you know, a hot war, uh, would be military escalation. Uh, that could be between Russian-backed forces and Turkish-backed forces in northwestern Syria, or it could be between uh, the Russian-backed regime, uh, Bashar al-Assad, or and the uh, the Kurdish-led uh, Syrian Democratic Forces in northeastern Syria, who enjoy U.S. support, and for you know several years, all of these forces have been kept apart more or less by understandings between the um, the external powers because they don't want to fight each other. Other, they, you don't want NATO-Russia clashes uh, in uh, in Syria, just as you don't want them in Ukraine. So deconfliction agreements between these forces, uh, between these external patrons of the Syrian forces, have have kept the war um, you know, boiling at a, at, a, at a lower temperature than would otherwise be the case. But if diplomacy breaks down and if tensions rise between the United States and Russia, it's or for that matter between the uh, Russia and, the, and Turkey, it's conceivable that one or several of these actors might try something in Syria to put pressure on the others, and that would of course. You know, that could reignite the conflict in ways we haven't seen yet in, 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 in some time. Um, I, sorry, go ahead. And I mean, let's, let's look at the individual stakeholders here. Let's look at Turkey to start with. I mean, for now, Turkey seems desperate to sort of strike some kind of middle ground between um, its relationship with Russia and NATO. Uh, but clearly, Turkey is very important to the war effort, to, to, to Russia's presence 
in Syria, if only because <laughs> Russian planes have to fly over Turkey to get there, Russian ships have to go through the Straits to get there. Um, so potentially, Turkey has a lot of leverage, right? Yeah, I think so. But Turkey is also exposed to Russian pressure in, in ways that makes it act carefully, and I think cautiously even. And I think we've seen that during the war so far, uh, especially you know with, with the Bosporus and the Dardanelles Straits, where, as you said, they, they control those uh, straits and between the Black Sea and the Mediterranean. And uh, that's all regulated by the Montreux Convention of 1936. And the Turks have been careful in applying it. They, they, they've tried to, they have said that, well, now that there's a war going on, we're supposed to close the straits. So they've done that, but they've also asked NATO ships to stay out of the, of the straits which would not be required normally, but they've sort of tried to walk both sides of the of the, of the issue there. And they've opposed sanctions on Russia. Um, so the, you know, they, 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 they clearly see uh, the Ukraine invasion as a, as a major problem. They're opposed to it. They, they support Ukraine in different ways, but, uh, but they've also tried to uh, appease Russia to an extent and to avoid uh, ruining their their relationship with Russia, knowing that you know Russia will be still be there after the war ends, uh, and so will Turkey, and I think that's also reflected in in Syria, uh, where Turkey and Russia has had this very strange relationship, of, you know, being enemies or supporting the supporting different sides in the conflict, but also constantly being in touch and talking and resolving issues and trying to sort of um, find common ground to the extent it's possible, and where it's not possible, they sort of um, push and pull until they can find an equilibrium and sometimes that changes and then the conflict renews and and that's been the story for several years and i i'm i don't really think that either turkey or russia is eager to to upend that uh, semi equilibrium that reigns there right now but but uh, the ukraine crisis is uh, adding new new elements to the mix that may be hard to control yes very unexpectedly uh Clearly, Russia didn't expect that kind of resistance from the Ukrainians. But as you pointed out, um, the, the, the impact could potentially be huge on Russia, or rather on Syria, uh, especially if, say, the Russians were to, well, lose whatever that actually looks like, I'm not sure. But wouldn't that possibly tempt the opposition to go after the regime in ways that it hasn't, and as you say, reignite the war? Well, it could. Uh, if Russia is significantly weakened by the Ukraine conflict, it might not be because they lose it, it might just be because they become bogged down in Ukraine and the sanctions trash their economy and you know they lose the ability they've had, or even the, the will they've had to support Bashar al-Assad so far, then that could create new openings. Or you could end up in a situation where the Russians are drawn into negotiations with Western governments, with Ukraine and with others, with Turkey uh, over Ukraine, and they want to trade something in Syria instead and sort of put, bring that into the discussion. And I'm sure, I, I think Bashar al-Assad at this point is worried about that. He, his government has been, you know, almost comically supportive of Russia. They, you know, Syrian state news at this point is, is like watching Russian state news. It's more Russia than, yeah. than Syria. Uh, but that is because he wants to show himself be as you know the perfect ally, extremely loyal, willing to support Russia in every way, and because he he cannot afford having Russia, especially po a potentially weakened Russia that has less 
to offer, he cannot, you know, afford to, to, to you know, he, he really wants to keep Russian support. Well, yeah, I can see that. And so by that token, does it also mean that, you know, he he's that much more reliant on the Iranians too, as the other big sort of supplier of weapons and, and forces? So it makes it even harder to disentangle himself from that relationship because the weaker Russia gets, the more reliant he becomes, as I said, on, on Iran. Sure, I think that's true. Uh, Bashar al-Assad will, of course, take the support he can get from whoever offers it, but Russia and Iran are his primary allies. Um, and he will certainly lean harder on the Iranians if he can and if he must. Uh, but I think the Russians offer him things that the Iranians cannot. And air support is one thing, um, but the diplomatic support they provide in the Security Council, for example, the Iranians can't match that. Uh, and also the just the, the deconfliction uh, systems that have appeared between Turks and Russians and Turk, uh, sorry, and Russians and, and Americans, uh, the Iranians cannot match that either. Um, if Assad's army were to try to go toe to toe with, with the US backed SDF, in northeastern Syria, for example, uh, with only Iranian support instead of Russian support, then they would get crushed. But in the as long as he has Russia on his side, then it's it's, it's a wholly different uh, issue, because Americans and Russians are very careful; they don't want to clash in Syria directly. Not for now, um, but could you envisage a scenario where the U.S. might feel it's expedient to sort of? Um, activate the Kurds, if you will, against the regime in some way to, to squeeze the Russians? Right, possibly. Um, I think there's a probably a temptation for European governments and also for the United States to look for Russian weak spots uh, wherever you can find them and sort of push those buttons right now. I think Syria might be insulated from that to an extent because uh, European governments do not really have much influence. Uh, Turkey does, if you count it as a European government. Um, but the United States has tried to sort of de-escalate the Syrian conflict. Under Biden, especially, um, Russians and Americans have actually had a bit of pragmatic, useful diplomacy on Syria. They still disagree on almost everything. But up until this point, they've, you know, they, they, they've traded favors and, and uh, concessions. Uh, in the Security Council to ensure that the conflict doesn't flare up again and that they are both getting something out of it at this point. But if diplomacy breaks down now, then that might not work. Um, and there's one issue in, in particular that I worry about, and that's the cross-border aid that's brought yes. in from Turkey yeah. Um, yes. yeah, to northwestern Syria. Uh, it's extremely important for the people who live there. Many of them are internally displaced and you know they, they survive only because of this food aid that's brought in by the United Nations and NGOs working with the United Nations. And that system relies on a UN Security Council authorization to bring aid across the border without the permission of Damascus, which would normally be, be needed. And it has to be renewed regularly. And the next renewal comes up in July, I think. Right, um, yes. And if that, you know, if, if US Russian diplomacy is defunct at that point, or if they're both just trying to sabotage for, you know, e each other, then Russia might just veto that or, or might not negotiate seriously, or the United the Americans might not, or, or just the, the, the absence of pragmatic constructive contacts might just ruin the whole thing. And well, that that's would be... one pressure point for sure. And then there's at least yeah. two 
is one being um, the, the Idlib, uh, yeah. you know, Idlib and uh, the, you know, um, constant threat of unleashing waves of refugees onto Turkey and eventually Europe, right? So yeah, yeah. that's one card that Russia holds. And then the other is this uh, interesting relationship it has with Israel, right? Where it sort of looks the other way as Israel sort of bombs the daylights mm. out of Iranian um, sort of assets in, in inside Syria. So, um, so where where does Israel actually fit into all of this? Would is Israel be um, against applying pressure on Russia in Syria precisely for that reason because Russia has been so helpful to it? I mean, the Israeli-Russian relationship is bigger than just Syria, but Syria is at this point a very big chunk of it because the Israelis, as you said, they they're worried about Iranians establishing structures like they have in Lebanon with Hezbollah and the missiles yeah. they have there. They're worried about that happening in Syria too. And they're also worried about the Assad regime in various ways, especially about chemical weapons and things of that nature. But um, so they rely on the Russians to be cooperative to a, to a degree, uh, allowing them to go in and, and perform air raids against Iranians, especially. Um, and the Russians have permitted that. They haven't intervened. They've said basically that as long as you don't kill Russians or as long as you don't seriously threaten Bashar al-Assad's hold on power, then you know we'll look the other way. And I think the Israeli line on Ukraine has been influenced by that and by oh, course, totally. other issues. In the totally. region, you know, it's actually the, quite shocking, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, they've had to because they're, you know, the, the allied with, with the West in so many ways. They've had to condemn the invasion, but they've also tried to speak out of both sides of their mouths, you know, in, to a degree and, and, and then, you know, want to be the mediator instead. You see the same thing from Turkey, by the way, that both of these nations have decided that they're uniquely suited to be the mediators, which they may or may not be, but they're certainly uh, in, 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 in great need of finding a role other than being on squarely on one side. No, totally, totally. Um, very difficult balance, certainly for Turkey to strike. Yes, but yes. Um, meanwhile, of course, there's this whole business of the worst drought in 70 years uh, playing out in Syria uh, with, you know, uh, people going hungry, actually. Um, and of course, with Russia I, and um, unable to export its wheat now and Ukraine also being prevented from doing so because of a naval blockade imposed by the Russians. Plus, you know, there's, they, they won't be able to plant for the next uh, crop, the next season. All of this is also going to make things that much worse. I mean, across the world, but certainly in Syria too. And as some analysts have pointed out, some of these uprisings, the Arab Spring uprisings were triggered by, you know, the sort of surging prices. And um, if people can't afford to eat, they, they rise up. And do you see that sort of also impacting the situation um, in unforeseen ways in Syria? Yeah, I think that's one of the big things to look for, not just in Syria, you also see it in Lebanon and, and across the North Africa and other, you know, East Africa as well, Somalia and other places. But yes, and I, I mean, the Russian export will resume at some point. Uh, there's no, you know, Turkey won't block civilian trade and exports and as soon as the Russians, you know, feel that, you know, it, it will resume. And Syria is mainly dependent on Russian exports. But the issue here is that even if Russia can still export its grain to Syria, the, the war, the conflict, the sanctions and all of the things 
involved there will throw the Russian economy in disarray. And that will, um, it, it, will, it will affect uh, agricultural production as well. Transport costs rise when fuel costs rise and you know, all of that. And the global rise in prices on these products will presumably be felt in Syria as well. And the thing is, you know, after so many years of war and after the very, very steep economic decline that set in in 2019, when Syria was hit by the Lebanese banking crisis and by, uh, you know, ramped up U.S. sanctions and a number of other issues, uh, there's just, the, the margins are just very, very thin for many, many people in Syria and on all sides, really. Um, and I think that could be one of the big impacts of, of the Ukraine conflict. If food prices keep rising, if fuel prices keep rising, um, then that could really throw things into, into disarray in Syria. And you could have uh, not just a humanitarian crisis as a result, uh, but also a situation where political and military actors grow so desperate, they start trying things that normally they would not have done. And that could... You know, like what, for example? Well, you know, if, if they need fuel or whatever the thing they need might be, or they need to distract the population, there might be any reason for them to, 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 to launch attacks, for example, uh, that they wouldn't have done otherwise. And it just makes the conflict very unpredictable, I think. Well, is, doesn't that create sort of a fertile breeding ground for ISIS, for example? Is that that ought to be a worry, surely? Any... Uh, resumption of major conflict, I think, would be beneficial to the Islamic State or ISIS. Um, and any worsening of the humanitarian and economic situation, too, because they're embedded in exactly the sort of networks that thrive in that situation, the smuggling and the, you know, they profit from taking percentages of uh, fuel production, and fuel sales and transport in certain areas of the of northeastern Syria or eastern Syria. Yeah, and we saw what they did with that prison. I mean, they're clearly yeah. not defeated, as it yeah. were. They're still around. I think uh, they're in a weak position now. They've, you know, they just lost their leader. They have a new one now, but um, they are in a weak position. They're doing poorly in in both Iraq and probably also Syria. It's unclear, but there are also signs that may, maybe they're underplaying their reporting of attacks or their claims of attacks in Syria to just go fly under the radar a little bit. And there are also some signs that maybe they're actually transferring assets from Iraq and just focusing on Syria because they see that as being maybe an area that's easier to organize in because it's split up between rival actors and you have all this sort of simmering conflict and crime and and, and misery to an extent that you don't really have it in Iraq anymore. Also quite a bit of uh, rancor among the civilian population. I mean, you saw the New York Times uh, series on how many civilians were killed in these coalition airstrikes and how that was sort of covered up. And yeah. you can just imagine how much hatred, that resentment that must have bred. I mean, sure. it doesn't get reported, but sure. I'm sure it exists. And so that also helps ISIS. But getting back to Bashar and how sort of nervous he's getting, um, clearly this whole effort to sort of um, rehabilitate him um, that was well, obviously driven by Russia, but more recently we've seen actors like the UAE and maybe a bit the Saudis and the Egyptians, um, that's all sort of gone <laughs> to waste, I guess, in the current circumstances. 
can they sustain that given how awful Putin looks? You don't want to be, um, you know, <laughs> seen as acting in concert with this man at this point. Well, I don't think the problem is necessarily that he looks awful. I think the problem is if he looks weak, then that will <laughs> dissuade some of the actors in the region, maybe from trying to sort of cozy up to Russia. Um, because you saw in 2015, when he went into Syria successfully and started turning the war around, the splash that made in the Arab world, especially, but all across the region and Turkey, of course, as well. Um, the, the, I think the impression that spread was that Russia was sort of a, it was on a winning streak. It was a powerful nation that you needed to have relations yeah. with. It wasn't that's that Putin was very nice. <laughs> but, no, but, no. So I, I think if Russia becomes significantly weakened, that will of course affect, you know, the, the whole sort of diplomatic um, campaign he's been been, uh, well, it's the Middle East, behalf. right? And they they respect tough guys. And suddenly, Vladimir Putin has egg all over his face. And yeah, exactly, exactly. So, but, yeah. but you know, we haven't seen it end yet. So, I, I, I you, you never know. But um, I think, in in as far as concerns the um, the relegitimization effort or the normalization uh, campaign. We did see now, as you said, the United Arab Emirates uh, inviting Bashar for a visit of state very publicly um, right now during the war, even though it's not going very well for Russia. So I think there is an Arab dimension and there's a national dimension for these actors that doesn't really have to do with Russia. They've sort of linked up with Russia in doing these things, but, but it's really about how they themselves view that conflict and view the region and their own national interests. And well, they way. also want to, I guess, counterbalance the Iranians on the one hand, but equally, yeah. however much we see this sort of rapprochement between uh, the UAE and Turkey, but Turkey, I think people are um, concerned about an irredentist Turkey, right? Uh, in yes. The Arab but world. I actually think that was one of the major drivers that got these nations, specifically Egypt, um, United Arab Emirates, and some others, Saudi Arabia, uh, even though they're not on board the normalization train yet, the Saudis. Um, I, the, the the Turkish dominance over the opposition uh, and the you know Turkish role generally in the conflict was certainly something that that you know got them to look at Bashar more kindly. This whole occupation is becoming pretty expensive for Turkey too. Now, I mean, its economy is not looking great, and now with oil prices going through the roof and the loss of tourism income and all that obviously it gets you know tricky and they were paying salaries and liras you know and the liras sort of <laughs> kind of like not as valuable as it used to be to put it mildly so the, the people there are very unhappy right in the occupied areas and so and so we see all these people volunteer volunteering to be mercenaries so Aaron what do you know about um Russians or Wagner or whoever taking Syrians to fight in Ukraine should we believe these stories? I mean, we do have anecdotal evidence of people signing up of forms being distributed to fill in and stuff, but it, is it serious? I Well, the short answer is I don't know. <laughs> but the slightly longer answer is that I, I think you should probably take it seriously. There will, some Syrians will probably turn up in Ukraine and do what God knows what. Uh, but I, I, you know, the, the numbers being banded about 16,000 or 40,000, you know, you can safely discount that. I think that's not going to happen, but, no. um, but, you know, now that Putin has, uh, you know, spoken about this publicly having, you know, 
volunteers from the Middle East and they'll have to bring someone. But why would even say that? It just sounds so weird because after all, I mean, I, I mean, even for the Russians themselves, that the, the idea that you would, you know, have these people, these Arab people um, come in and sort of fight people you claim are the, the same as you, you, you know, isn't that Putin's big spiel that in fact, the Ukrainians and the Russians are the same people? Yeah, I can't. And, and, you know, I mean, I, I don't. <laughs> saying it as they would see things, not as I would see things. You know, sure, not sure, or sure. anything. But you know what I'm trying to say that oh, these Arabs come in and here they are, maybe deflowering our women. And yeah, I <laughs> I'm mean, sure that will be part of the narrative. Yes. Yeah. But, I mean, it, it doesn't sound like the smartest move, does it? Really, it's weird. It's totally weird. Which brings me back to my final question, uh, which is. We suddenly are faced with this incredibly, apparently, irrational Vladimir Putin. Um, I mean, he clearly misjudged something or several somethings very badly. Um, yep. I, I would be careful about thinking that he's irrational. He might have poor information. He may be, you know, occasionally emotional. We don't really know. But I mean, the Kremlin, just like the, the Damascus regime and many other actors in this region, uh are very opaque it's it's very difficult to know how decisions are made and who makes the decisions and based on what information you know consulting with whom um putin has proved himself to be a shrewd player at other times and now that he's you know clearly made some serious mistakes uh we shouldn't necessarily assume i think that he will continue making mistakes he might he might but but uh, he might also um, and he has a lot of resources um, still, uh, and, and there's certainly a potential for escalation that's pretty frightening. Well, yeah, well, but that would, to me, it would be irrational if he resorted to non-conventional weapons, which he might, and that's a terrifying thought. It might seem rational to him to, to make people back off by, by rattling the nuclear arsenal. We saw that early in the war when he said, you know, we were putting the nuclear forces and on, on uh, uh, think, uh, us all because in that yeah. case also again coming back to syria i can see how turkey would then be forced to take sides i mean yeah i mean i don't think putin will nuke ukraine or anything of that sort but you know there might be i'm not a specialist on this these issues but he might just raise the raise the issue again more forcefully or there might be nuclear tests conducted just to signal things and that but you know, it, it, it is an element uh, that I think is, is worth taking seriously and that, should, you know, should scare us all a little bit. Well, it's all pretty sort of for now, it's the big unknown, right? So I guess, um, as you said, Assad must be nervous and rightly so. Yeah, I think we should all be a little bit nervous about Ukraine. <laughs> we all should be a little bit nervous, <laughs> oh my God. Yes. But I think Assad has reason to be nervous about things in Syria specifically. And I think the thing is that all sides in Syria really have that, have reason to be nervous because it's unpredictable more than anything else. It's not clear who gains from this. Someone might, but we don't know. Totally. And if, as you say, he pulls out the um, cross-border uh, thing, a uh, card, you know, knows hmm. that or, you know, the fact that all this food these food prices are going up through the going through the roof and i mean yeah and maybe turkey will send an opportunity to do something because the world's you know focused on ukraine and 
likely to be more lenient on Turkey, so it may go zap the Kurds again. Who knows? I mean, yeah. lots of uncertainty there. Well, listen, Aaron, it was great talking to you. Thank you so very much. Thank you. Great talking to you too. Elizabeth Hagedorn, and I'm the State Department correspondent at El Monitor. And I'm Joe Snell. I'm El Monitor's video editor. Let's admit it, this past year has been difficult to stay on top of the news and sift through what's accurate and what's misleading. Let El Monitor help you. If you care about the Middle East and North Africa, you should consider listening to El Monitor's audio series on the Middle East with Andrew Parasoliti and Amber and Zaman, and on Israel with Ben Caspi. You can now watch our newest video podcast, Reading the Middle East with Gilles Capel. You can subscribe to these series on your favorite podcast platforms. And through a host of free daily and weekly newsletters, we offer a range of perspectives with the highest journalistic standards. You can subscribe to these newsletters at almonitor.com. As an award-winning media service headquartered in Washington, D.C., Almonitor has a network of over 160 contributors around the world. So if you haven't done so already, be sure to visit almonitor.com, where you can find all of these newsletters and podcasts, along with first-class reporting and analysis. And that brings us to the end of this week's On the Middle East. Ukraine will continue to figure prominently in our reporting, so stay tuned and hope to be with you again soon.